We've seen some shit. We've done some shit. We even managed to figure some shit out. And now we're here to talk about it. The Gay Thing is a space where we share our stories with the intention of inspiring honest self-exploration and authenticity. I'm Andrew Martin. And I'm Ryan Allen. And and this this is is The Gay Gay Thing. Visit our website at thegaything.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at It's The Gay Thing. And listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes at The Gay Thing Podcast. Please like, share, rate, and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Hey, boo. Hi, honey. How's she doing? I am doing really well today. I think the last time we talked, I was a little anxious and was kind of stressing out and was really bringing a lot of stress with me (laughs) to our last (laughs) episode. And I think you even mentioned, you're like, God, just listening to what's going on is stressing me out. Um, Uh (laughs) My to-do list last time we spoke was just so feeling monumental. And there were, most of it I think was because there were a couple of things on that to-do list that I had been kicking the can down the road on for a while. And it had been like, Mm -hmm. there were some things on there that I had had, you know, I'd known were on my list for like a month plus and I just hadn't been getting to it. So my to-do list is complete. I do not currently have an active to-do list, um, which feels amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So you can bring your energy focused into this conversation. Yes. And you know, it's funny. I was talking with, um, talking with a friend of mine who, you know, she's also an entrepreneur and a solo entrepreneur. And we were just talking about, you know, the workload and how, you know, you're the one that's doing it and it's your, you know, if you don't do it, then it won't get done for the most part. Um, And I was saying, you know, my greatest luxury lately is not being on social media because, you know, I use so much social media to promote my business, Um, not being on social media and having nothing to do. Those right now are currently the most like luxurious, indulgent things that I I do. It feels so amazing. I know I'm with you. I, last night I, um, I turned off all the lights in my house and lit candles and did a whole like stretching routine as I was like listening to a podcast and, I didn't have anything I had to do. I didn't have anything I had, anyone I had to get back to, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh man, this is what it's like to feel unburdened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was so nice. Totally. And you and I have talked about this, like that sense of like you get, I mean, for myself, sometimes I get so in that mode of gotta go, gotta go, gotta do, gotta do, and, you know, achieve and task oriented, you know, blah, 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 that it takes a minute. It's almost like a muscle that I haven't used anymore. That muscle of just letting totally. myself be with nothing to do. Cause I find like, even on the days when I know I have everything complete, when there's nothing looming, You're when still everything looking for something. Yeah. And that sense, it's almost like this anxiety of like, Oh my God, is there something I'm forgetting? Is there something I didn't mm-hmm. do? And it's just, oh, it feels so I know. good. Well, it considering so good. all the work that we did yesterday for mm-hmm. our event, Yes. Good segue, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> Your media training is paying off. Yes. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that for a second before we get into it. I am super excited. Our first ever collaboration on this event um, coming up in San Francisco, the Transformation Lab. Um, and I could not be more excited about it. And what are the dates again? January? It's uh, January 13th. 13th and 14th of Saturday and Sunday, two full days. Um, and it's going to be at Lifted, my studio in San Francisco. And it's the first time that we have collaborated and like fully brought our witchy powers together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so, 
excited that, you know, the details are it's the two days from 11 to six each mm-hmm. day. And it is not an overnight thing. We just want to make that clear. So if people do by chance. Don't bring have, your sleeping bag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and don't expect breakfast or lunch. Um, right. I, you know, for us to bring our two, you know, complementary skill sets, you know, you have your foot in your world. I have my foot in my world. And then we meet in the middle. It's that Venn diagram idea. Um, and I'm really, really excited to do this intensive self-exploration, um, really getting into our emotional state and learning how to use our emotions actively and consciously to create a life that we want and really build that blueprint from the emotional perspective. Um, you're going to be doing the conscious movement, which I am so excited to explore that more, that, mm-hmm. that connection between personal power and feeling empowered and connected and how the yeah. body plays such a huge role in that. Yeah, me too. I'm, uh, as we, as we were starting to write out the description of this, we realized like our intention wasn't necessarily mind, body, spirit, but it really is truly a mind, body, spirit, um, event that we're going to be using all of those things to help people grasp their own power and transform their lives themselves with the tools and the space that we provide. Yeah, totally. So we'll put the link in our um, description for this um, for this episode. We'll put the link in the description to the Eventbrite page. It's also on my Facebook page, Andrew Martin Energy, and on your Facebook page, Become Lifted. And then also separately, we will have access to it through our newsletters and our own websites and all that. So there will be plenty of ways that people can find it and sign up. And it's only it's limited to 10 people, which I think is a really important point to make, that it's going to be a very small group, yeah. very intimate group of people who are really ready to do that work and get a little uncomfortable perhaps and be vulnerable and be raw and not only honor their willingness to do that, but also hold space for the rest of the group and really come together as um, a unit of people who are you know consciously stepping forward to make some change. Yeah, it's going to be so powerful. I'm really, really excited. Me too. And I'm very excited about our guest today. Who's our guest, Andrew? I don't know. You tell me, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Our guest today is Doug Ronning. He was my therapist years ago um, for the first time that I had ever had therapy. The only time I've ever had therapy Um, For a few years, we worked together, and I found Doug's work to be so helpful at that period in my life. Um, Really, I didn't know why I was going to him, and and he helped me suss out a lot of that. Um, And so we're going to just have a discussion about some of the things that he helped me with, and how that relates to most gay men and talk a lot about um, how our internal world influences our outer experience um, and how the healing of all of our internal world um, assists in that as well. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you, Ryan and Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. We are so excited you're here. And I think it should be noted that when we started this podcast and we were talking about, you know, are we going to have guests or not? And we said, yeah, let's have guests. Your name, Doug, was the first one that came up. Ryan was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk to Doug at some point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. So here yeah, we are. I mean, I'm we want, we want <laughs> professionals on here too, you know? We want people who have studied in some of the things that we're, we're talking about and making sure that we get some really um, accurate 
advice um, during our conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Doug, for the people that are listening, can you just give us a little bit of insight into what you do, um, how you work and, you know, tell people what you think is important for them to know about you? Sure. Um, I'm an experiential uh, psychotherapist. Um, my office is in Noe Valley. I've been practicing for about 10 years now. And um, uh, in addition to um, uh, being a therapist, I also am an adjunct lecturer at uh, California Institute of Integral Studies uh, in, psycho- in psychological counseling. Um, and uh, I see a lot of gay men in my practice, um, as well as couples. Uh, that is a primary part of the work. My, my, my main focus is, and specialties are in anxiety, on compulsive disorders, uh, which include sexual compulsion and uh, addictions um, and OCD um, and grief work and, and uh, relationship building. That's amazing. I mean, that's right up our alley. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we might need to have you on again for because now I'm like, we need to talk about this too. I don't know if we're going to have enough time to dig into all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things on that list that we could build an episode yeah, around. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I got the most from working with you, Doug, is I know you can't necessarily talk directly to our experience together because of, um, of the, the client privilege, but I can talk about it. So I'll talk about kind of my experience and then we can talk about it in the broader sense. Um, I remember when I came to see you, I came to see you at a time that I think I was, I was just starting to date again after a relationship and I wanted to create new, um, new ways of being in a relationship. And I was wondering why the same things were coming up over and over. And I was just really, really tired of it. And, um, and so we worked together for a few years. And one of the big things that was the most helpful for to me, to me was um, the work that we did around internalized homophobia. And I remember thinking when you brought it up, thinking like, no, I'm so comfortable being gay. I'm, I'm fine. There's no way that I have internalized homophobia. You know, I'm gay out loud and proud. And then when we started digging into it, it became very clear that that was, that was something that was um, affecting a lot of areas in my life. Is, do you feel like most gay men at some point in their life have internalized homophobia? And how would you describe like what, you know, I can't really describe what that is. It'd be really helpful to hear what, if you can help describe what that actually means. Sure. Um, I do want to point people to a great book uh, called The Velvet Rage um, by Dr. Alan Downs, um, Mm. which um, the whole book is about this very thing, internalized homophobia. Um, growing up gay in a straight world, um, that there's um, a shame, that it, uh, a toxic shame that builds up. Um, and so this internalized homophobia can lead to um, inauthenticity, um, perfectionism, um, uh, the, the um, um, bodybuilding and uh, uh, fashion and uh, having the perfect home. All of that um, is kind of a way to 
uh, guard against that, that uh, tender hurt that is deep inside. Um, and that comes out in our, uh, uh, our cattiness and the way that we will um, scan a room and only zoom in on the people that we're attracted to, as opposed to taking in all of the uh, people in the room that may offer interesting conversation and uh, uh, other things other than uh, that kind of sexual urge. Um, mm-hmm. All of that is covered in this book. Um, and I do think that most gay men, when they start to consider how they, um, how they relate to other gay men, uh, will we'll find something in that book uh, that, will, that can help them uh, in terms of uh, what I really like about uh, his book is it's not just, well, this is, this is common um, uh, amongst gay men and these are the patterns, but he, he offers um, these steps towards authenticity at the end, um, which I often use with, uh, with clients. Um, and I actually used those steps in a men's group that I facilitated that was made up of gay, bi, and straight men, um, and all of the men in that uh, in that group found the the steps towards being an authentic man useful. So um, I think it can speak to people who are also not gay. Though that is mm-hmm. what the focus of the book is on is is um, um, this kind of taking on the uh, the uh, cultural oppression um, and 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 uh, and how we had to hide for so many years, particularly those of us of a, you know, anybody um, who grew up 20, 30, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, the further back we go, the greater that, that was um, until the 1970s, homosexuality was in the DSM as a di- disorder. Um, so uh, I think it's a, it's a great book in, in terms of uh, really defining what internalized homophobia is, how toxic it is to individuals, and how toxic it is for our um, subculture, and for us as uh, queer people. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it, it does, it, just like what you've said, you know, that how it comes across is like, um, I think that this part of the reason that we started this podcast was because, you know, there is this general sense that gay men who are urban gay men are, we're supposed to be focused on, or it's just natural for us to focus on um, fashion and design and great bodies and the cattiness that we have between each other. That just seems to be like a given that all of us are going to be interested in those things and put high value on them as well as act in those ways. And I think that um, that's why we started the podcast was to go to say, you know, maybe there's, there's something more beyond this, you know, that maybe this doesn't feel so satisfying. So what else is out there? What other kind of gay voices can we hear and what other kind of conversations can we have? Yeah, and the idea... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Andrew. No, I was just going to say in this idea that I I, I feel, and this is just an intuitive sense that I get, when you go into a gay bar or a room full of gay men or a room where it's predominantly gay men, there seems to be the sense of everybody just putting up this front, but so many people inside are just dying for someone to really show who they really are. 
Like nobody wants to be the first one to drop their guard, but everyone just seems to be desperate for someone to do it. Cause I really do believe there seems to be this urge beneath the surface for all of us to say, I just want to be real. I want to connect in authentic, meaningful ways. Like you said, Ryan, like there's some behaviors that I'm repeating that I know aren't healthy. Um, you know, and in my own experience, the same thing, like saying, wait a minute, when did I decide that this is who I was and this is what I, I needed to do in order to be happy or accepted or, or whatever it is. And there are helpful ways to approach all of those things that like, um, certainly being fit and, um, and enjoying fashion or enjoying a home building. None of those things are inherently negative. It's just recognizing what the roots are of that. Um, particularly if it's leading to inauthenticity. Uh, yeah. Because all of those things can be delicious, you know? Yeah, I like nice shoes. Right. <laughs> I want a nice exactly. house. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I also okay. don't want to feel like I'm tied to that, that if my shoes are old or, you know, if my clothes aren't, you know, just bought five seconds ago, that somehow I'm less valuable or less important or less meaningful. Yes. Is there a way, you know, I, I definitely recommend people reading that book because that was very helpful for me too, to kind of really see it laid out in, you know, these are the things that we do to protect ourselves. Um, but if someone is kind of wondering as they're listening to this, like, oh, I probably don't have internalized homophobia because I'm not catty or whatever. Um, they're not relating to the things that maybe the few things that we've just listed off. Is there a way that people can start to investigate if internalized homophobia is affecting their life and their decisions and their internal world? Uh, yes. And I think that that again turns to um, an experience of shame. And I, um, you know, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt uh, is a, I see a useful feeling that happens when we've done something wrong um, we've hurt someone, um, or we told a lie. Um, and so we feel guilty about that thing. And then we can make amends. Whereas shame says there's something wrong with me. Um, mm. and I think that is a common experience for gay men. There's, there's something wrong with me. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, if, if th that experience exists in your life in any way, to, to question, well, how much of that, the thing about shame is it comes from outside. So it, it, we may feel like guilt is, is a, a more, I think, a more natural emotion where that will emerge in response to something we did. Mm -hmm. But shame is the world telling us um, you are less than. Um, there are still people fighting against marriage equality even today when it's the law of the land. So this idea, I love that distinction. And we had a little interruption. Um, our, our call got dropped. So if the transition uh, seemed a little bit rough, that was why. But this idea that shame is an external voice or expectation um, being projected on us and guilt is this internal knowing that I did something that I don't feel good about or, you know, I maybe, you know, hurt someone on purpose or did something that I'm not really happy with. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. That's how, I, that's how I make the distinction between the two. Um, and guilt is a useful and healthy emotion, and shame is mostly toxic. Um, I, I, I know that uh, shame is taught as a positive thing in prison um, for people who have sociopathy, and, um, but for the most part, shame um, is a harmful experience for people. It leads to disorders. It leads to e 
eating disorders. It leads to chemical dependency. Um, it leads to people believing they are unlovable um, and then not being able to forge meaningful uh, intimate relationships with people because they, uh, they feel um, somehow uh, not full right. um, and not, not capable of, of being able to. Um, and again, it's that voice, uh, there's something wrong with me. Um, it is interesting now that the gay shame is also a movement within the queer community, um, because, uh, which is kind of uh, offered as an alternative to um, uh, gay mainstreaming, uh, to uh, the over-commercialization of gay pride. Um, but I, I think even, the, the, so there, there, uh, there's a movement that's trying to take this term back um, but, uh, but even that, I think at, at the, at the essence of that, uh, uh, that movement, there is, um, uh, and let, let's embrace our full queerness, you know, let's mm-hmm. embrace, um, all of our freakiness, um, and we not have to assimilate into, yeah. uh, the greater culture fully. Um, and it feels to me like, you know, just even when you're talking about the difference between guilt and shame, Shame just also feels really, really confusing and how perhaps it can even perpetuate us making choices and going into behaviors where we're trying to please some sort of abstract external idea, right? Or some, some expectation that maybe we don't even hold to be true, but there's a sense of like, something is wrong. I don't understand what it is. So it must be something wrong with me. So let me try or do things or try to normalize myself, which I think it's a beautiful point that you just made this idea that we have to somehow sanitize and normalize and cut off all of the most interesting parts of ourselves so that this world at large out here will accept me. Mm-hmm. And how horrible that feels just even thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's, I mean, getting back to my personal experience with you, that's, that's really what it came down to for me was like holding myself back from um, from the type of relationship that I wanted and the type of experience I wanted in a relationship because for some reason I didn't feel like I was good enough for it. And um, yeah, and it, and it all came down to shame from the past. Um, if people, so, so, one my question to you was like, how do people recognize if they have internalized homophobia? And so you would say that if people recognize that they have shame and that they feel that there's something wrong with them, that that is a good indication for gay men that it's attached to uh, internalized homophobia. Yes. Yes. And I think that's clearer to, uh, to men um, that grew up uh, in religious, uh, um, religious households or religious communities um, because they'll recognize the roots of that. But I think for people who didn't necessarily go, well, oh, I don't really, because I didn't encounter it. You know, my, my family was okay with my being gay when I came out, but that there is mm-hmm. still, um, you know, all of our uh, models for how to be in relationship um, were uh, mostly heterosexual when you, in the media um, and in, uh, um, in, in most of our lives um, until we actually came out or unless we may have had a gay uncle or a gay, um, but um, 
uh, in my experience growing up in the 70s and the 1970s when I was a teenager, um, uh, there were no role models and it was still very much a, uh, a, a shameful, it was, it was a shameful act. And that was, that was the, the message that I got. Yeah. Um, and well, then even, when I did come out, I came out into to, uh, the emergence of HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Which was a whole other, which, like that was a whole other thing to contend with. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Reagan. Yeah. Right. And even today, like I've shared this story before, um, you know, I was on Instagram and recently, this was a few months ago, and there was a dog rescue page that I followed. And one of the rescuers is a really, really sexy guy. And it became sort of a running joke on this Instagram that, you know, they would have this rescuer pose with the puppy and they would say, you know, every time we show Bob or whatever his name was with the puppy, the puppy gets adopted. And, you know, it became this running joke. But I started to realize every single time that they would post something about him, it would be like, all right, ladies, get ready. Here comes Bob. And I mm. thought, you know, that is not I certainly doubt that their conscious intention was we're going to be exclusive. Right. I don't think it was intentionally to be anti-gay or homophobic or whatever. But from my perspective, I thought and I even commented, well, some of your male viewers are also interested in Bob. <laughs> and I thought just that tiny little, you know, we could call it a microaggression or whatever. When you go to the Walgreens card section and every single card for, you know, my beautiful wife, my beautiful husband, there's no, you know, sort of my partner or what, you know what I mean? So it still is this insidious kind of fabric that's woven into our society that I think a lot of times we don't even think about it until we take the time to go, wait a minute, why does it make me feel funky when they're talking about ladies looking at Bob and it's this sense of exclusion? Well, and it's like we come out and we think just the process of coming out and now having gay friends and a gay community that we are comfortable within, that that means that we're okay with being gay. Yeah. But that yeah. just means that we're living with a lot of other people that aren't okay with being gay a lot of the times, <laughs> you know? Like that's why, that's why it's a lot of bar culture. That's why a lot of gay men hang out as they're partying rather than like, you know, maybe having other experiences together. Um, at least, you know, when you're kind of in, in the shame, that is the tendency. And I think that that's what I thought. I think I thought, well, I've been living as an out gay man since I was 16. And I think I came to see you when I was like 35. And I thought, well, I've been living in a gay community, feeling fine. I don't hate other gay men. So there's no homophobia here. And it's not until it, until you start digging and investigating a little bit. Um, and I think that that's kind of where it comes into like how our internal experience affects our outer experience, which for me was like not being able to have the type of relationship I wanted. Um, mm -hmm. how do people go through the process of healing this? Um, well, I think it's, uh, it's a process that's, uh, unique to the individual, um, in terms of, um, uh, accepting parts of themselves, accepting parts of their story, uh, accepting what makes them unique, uh, amongst, you know, uh, we as uh, uh, gay men and, and queer and queer people are are not the same. We are not all the same in any way. 
So yeah. even accepting um, that uh, you can be unique and and uh, and you can't accept others to expect others to accept you uh, if you don't have self self acceptance. So I think that it's a process of self acceptance. I think almost all therapy is a process of self acceptance. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but that is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and for me, as an experiential psychotherapist, I want people to have an experience in the room. Um, so I will even uh, uh, have people uh, talk to their uh, 14-year-old self, um, have a conversation with their 14-year-old self. Or, um, again, there, uh, uh, I use a lot of expressive arts. Um, and uh, just because that frees up the child, the, the child state, um, mm-hmm. that can even be so threatening to people like just to, 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 uh, well, I don't do art. Um, and it's not about making art. It's about expressing oneself, um, and finding alternative ways of expressing. Cause there are some things that, um, uh, we verbally just cannot, and, and that we can better represent visually. Um, mm-hmm. like our, uh, I often will have people, um, um, paint or draw their, their, uh, whatever the emotional experience they're presenting with, whether it's shame, whether it's grief, um, uh, whether it's, uh, long, a longing. Um, so, uh, expressing and accepting, I think are, are the ways to get through, uh, through the shame experience. And again, I do think that Alan, um, in, in Velvet Ridge has a really clear roadmap for, for doing those things. Mm-hmm. And I love that you talk about, you know, bringing out the child and bringing out the wounded part of the self, because I remember this was in, you know, the early nineties when I was living in Seattle and I was having some, some of the similar issues that you were talking about, Ryan. And so I went to see a therapist, um, Jay Craver was his name. And he, it sounds to me, Doug, like he had a similar approach and, you know, his book that he recommended back then was the best little boy in the world. And he would have me, he said, okay, I want you to name your inner child. Um, He said, and I want you to take him out for walks with you. I want you to illustrate to him like where you are now and who you are now and the things that are interesting to you and the things that are, you know, exciting to you. And that at the time, I remember thinking like, gosh, this is really weird. I don't Mm -hmm. don't really, you know, I don't really understand this, but I still, to this day, it's a technique that I use when I'm feeling you know, unclear on something or confused or conflicted. And I have a journal now where I do this and I write letters to myself um, or will write, you know, a note to myself asking these questions and then write the response back from the perspective of that, that other self. Um, And it's hugely, hugely insightful just to make that connection. It's a sense of relief to just be able to acknowledge it. For a lot of queer men, again, because of bullying um, or because of non-acceptance of people that they, um, uh, that they were close to in their lives, there's a traumatic element to, to even so like they may hate their inner child self because that um, it feels like a victim or it feels like a, I, I, w- I could not protect myself or mm. so. Um, so there's shame in just uh, having this, this uh, part of oneself that uh, you have to, one has to admit I was bullied or that, the, and that there's trauma in that. I mean, I'm still carrying that trauma with me today. Um, uh, and again, accepting that as part of one's story, but not the totality of, and, and, and recognizing, um, I, th- I think one of the, the powerful things about our coming out stories, 
um, and they, it, it, it gets better campaign is that it, um, it, it highlights the transformation that, that has happened. It happened for so many individuals and because it happened for so many individuals uh, and because they uh, became public about it, uh, it helped to transform the culture. Yeah. And shame can be so isolating. And so when yeah. you just see other people sharing openly on YouTube or television or social media or wherever, um, that they are also saying, yeah, I, you know, I hated myself too. And I, I think that you brought up a really good point and something that I want to, you know, I know we also want to talk about the process of grief and the experience of grief. And I see a connection here that I find very interesting. And what you said, Doug was, you know, confronting or in acknowledging, perhaps confronting is too strong a word, but acknowledging the fact that there is pain here and realizing that, mm-hmm. man, I hate the part of myself that is vulnerable and weak because maybe I equate that was the part of me that was teased and bullied and sort of targeted mm-hmm. yeah. and how yes. that can be such a toxic thing to literally hate the part of yourself and hold it accountable and almost blame the self. And we talked about before we recorded this idea of in order for change to happen or in order to heal. um, And I think important also to note that the healing process is a lifelong journey, right? I think it's a degree and Mm -hmm. progress. And I don't think we ever get to the point where we hang the banner and say, yay, I'm healed. (laughs) Uh, But I think that the idea of you must be willing to move in the direction of the discomfort, you kind of have to lean into that pain at some point in some way in order to heal. Yes. Yes. I think that both shame and uh, grief, what, uh, what they, what they do have in common for me as an experience is that they are lifelong. Uh, we are mm. constantly, um, grief transforms us. You know, when I, when I was in my twenties and, and, um, suddenly I had friends dying. I had no, uh, uh, I, I, I went in, I, I, part of the reason I became a therapist is I saw a really great therapist in the 1990s. I was, I became cut off from my feelings because it was so overwhelming to have to experience the grief and the loss um, that I just became completely cut off from my feelings. Um, and in, um, through psychotherapy, I, I was able to, uh, reconnect with both my authentic self and, and the grief. Um, and I still, uh, two years ago this month, um, my best friend died, uh, who was heterosexual. Um, but, uh, it took me right back to that place, um, uh, back in the uh, late 1980s when so many of my friends were dying. Um, that, that feeling was so familiar. Yeah. And it becomes such a pervasive thing. I mean, I remember, you know, I moved to Seattle when I was 18 in 1990 and having grown up in a small town in Wyoming. And, you know, I certainly had my share of, of shame and, and feeling bad about myself and um, not really understanding even how that, you know, affected me until really, you know, recently. But growing up in, you know, moving to Seattle in the 90s, here I am. And, you know, HIV and AIDS had been a part of my experience since the mid 80s. And, also happened to be at the time when I started to become sexually active. So that was another layer of terror, you know, added on top of it. But, you know, it's like, here I am, I finally make it to the promised land. I'm in Seattle, I'm gay, I'm out. And suddenly everyone around me is just like dropping dead. And it was such a terrifying time. And I think the power of that, and you talk about how grief continues to affect us and echo through our experience really for a lifetime 
I think it's important. And I, I know it's a big question, but for you and from your experience, how do people manage that? Like if grief and shame are something that we always carry with us in some way, I mean, how do you even begin to approach that? Sometimes it feels like an insurmountable climb. Um, I think it's, it's rather than identifying wholly with it, recognizing that it's part of one's story and part of one's experience. And mm. um, it's interesting because I use a lot of narrative therapy and, and the idea in narrative therapy is that you externalize the problem. So it's really great for OCD because people feel that, um, that uh, OCD is not uh, an authentic part of themselves, that they have this compulsive, um, these compulsive ideas um, and that they have to then do these um, behaviors to uh, get through the anxiety of these, these thoughts like, um, you know, um, something bad will happen to somebody that I love if I don't do all of these compulsive behaviors, um, or something about my identity will change if I don't do all of these behaviors, um, or I will degenerate in some way. Um, so it's easy to externalize that, but I would never externalize grief, um, um, in the same way, because I see it as such, a uh, an integral part of being human that we experience it in its fullness. Um, but we recognize that every loss, um, that we come in contact with, uh, is a reminder of previous losses. One of the exercises I do with people when I'm working with grief is, um, uh, an exercise called the museum of loss. Um, and, uh, it's where they actually create, uh, um, a museum, uh, it starts with a, a, a piece of, a, a map on a piece of paper, um, uh, any kind of size loss, uh, the loss of a pet, um, the loss of innocence, the loss of uh, whatever, whatever losses people experience. Um, and then we actually manifest them in the room and give them voice, um, leading up to the most recent losses. Um, earliest loss, uh, most painful loss, um, um, and it creates this really, um, even being, I think, having it witnessed by someone um, and expressed so fully in, um, in a room like that um, is a transformative experience for people. Um, wow. To have That's it all, so all laid out in that way. That is so yeah. powerful. And I, I think and, the, the piece, sorry to, to interject here, Ryan, just that piece of having someone else witness it because if you're giving that pain a voice to have someone stand sort of witness to it and just give a place where someone can be seen in that grieving or that expression of that pain. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Pretty, that's what was, that's what was uh, interesting to me too, as I was thinking about this and thinking about hearing you talk about it, I almost feel myself getting emotional thinking of these things. And I think like it. um, it takes a strong person to face these things. And it also takes community and it takes either someone that you are choosing to help you along this path, or at the very least friendships that you can go to, to, to be present with these things. Well, yeah. And I think about like, I'm starting to think of like a lot of other cultures, not necessarily Western culture or, you know, American culture, but cultures where it, grief is a tribal process or grief is a community process. And that idea that yes. you're not alone in it. Yes. There is a, and that, oh, um, six feet under the show, six feet under, 
which I really I loved. Love that show. Um, I love that show. I love that show. Yeah, I did too. It's one of my favorite programs ever. But it's about this family who uh, own a funeral home, but they are all so cut off in their own feelings. Um, yeah. And there's this great part where the eldest, um, as a matter of fact, when I was in um, in uh, school for psychotherapy, there was one semester where we practiced being psychotherapists with one another and you had to choose a character. So you weren't playing yourself. Of course, you chose characters that you would, you know, that you would be. So when the, when the other person would be doing psychotherapy, it would be with this character. And I chose the elder brother from Six Feet Under. And there was one scene in the show where he talks about, um, being on a boat and witnessing this funeral procession of women who were tearing their clothes and screaming and, and, and gnashing their teeth and, and, and wailing and, and singing. Um, and he was like, I want to have that kind of an emotional experience because he's so cut off from his feelings. He can't. Um, I was so moved by that scene. Um, and I think, um, I think for me, part of in, uh, psychotherapy is again, it, have, creating an experience where people can have those kinds of experiences in a contained way. Um, That's amazing. Well, because I, grief is so nonlinear. I mean, it seems to me that it's yeah. such a tricky personal thing. I mean, I remember, you know, my granny, my mom's mom, I was very, very close to her and she was like a second mother in many ways. And I remember she died, what was 2000, it was about almost 10 years ago. And um, I remember when I was living in New York at the time and she wasn't sick, but she was getting older. There was a period of about two years where she was still alive and I would burst into tears on the, on the train just thinking about the fact that she was going to be dying soon. And I remember being so taken aback by that and really kind of confused because I was like, why am I crying about her dying when she's not even dead? She's still, you know, healthy. I mean, she was in her early 90s, but she was still healthy and functional and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I can't, I mean, grief isn't, it's not like there's a rule book for this is how to grieve. Right. Well, and a lot of people know the five stages of grief the, by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But I mean, most of us uh, who work with grief don't, uh, don't, uh, use those anymore we uh, i would encourage people to have what what their authentic experience of a grief is and not being judging judging uh, have i gone through this state stage yet <laughs> is, is, can i expect right. this stage to happen um, right like it's a checklist um, right because it's it's not um and i think grief can blindside us um uh you know on on a tuesday afternoon suddenly we find ourselves uh, a, a music can take us there. I know uh, songs can take me there or, 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 or if photos come up on my Apple TV, you know, of, of, of my, of my, uh, my best friend, old pictures of my best friend, I can immediately have an emotional experience. You know, yeah. even now when I'm, I've kind of have accepted the loss and I, um, it's, it's been integrated into my life more and, um, but that loss is still there. That relationship um, I, I can't engage with in the same way that we used to. Um, yeah. But I think you bring up an interesting point again about move, being willing to be, you know, to move in the direction of that discomfort or the fear of feeling the feelings or whatever it is. For my experience, the grief of the loss of my grandmother has softened now into, because for me, it's food. Like we used to cook a lot when I was a kid. And so there are certain foods that we used to cook together and we used to bake a lot. And so when I'm making biscuits or gingerbread, 
I, those were two of the favorites. And so I often find myself getting wistful or being emotional, but now it's in a sense of sure there's sadness and sure there's grief, but it's something for me that has softened. And now it's more of an opportunity to remember her. And it mm-hmm. does feel like something that is not as heavy or as terrifying or as, you know, intense. Um, and so the relationship with the grief itself changes, I think for me anyway. Yeah. Uh, a part of, of the grief process is the gratitude the gratitude for that relationship, um, mm. you know, that just recognizing that um, this relationship really um, brought meaning to my life in some way. That's not one of Kubler's stages, but I think coming to a place of, 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 of gratitude um, and recognizing that I'm different because this person was in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's beautiful. I, I did that with... Um, with my dog who died a couple of years ago, um, it was one of the most painfully painful emotional experiences I've ever had. I found myself really, for lack of a better term, like leaning into the pain because I knew I had to experience it or else it was not gonna <laughs> it was gonna feel even worse for a longer period of time. And so I made the choice to, on his last few days, experience, like have friends come over and be with him and be with, I, with me and to really kind of make a, almost an event out of it. So it was something that I could really just be in and experience as well as afterward writing about what I learned from him, what he taught me and what our relationship meant to me over that period that's making me want to cry right now i know <laughs> i'm getting emotional too <laughs> it was it, because it it was you know it was such a beautiful relationship that we had um and to be able to now you know i i wrote about it and i shared it on facebook and i have it you know written on paper but i also like each year it, that memory comes around on Facebook and I can read it and I can see the pictures of him and I can really like experience again, like, yes, I'm so thankful that I had this little guy, you know, and to be able to, um, to experience the grief made the relationship even that much more beautiful. And that you, cause I remembered that period, Ryan, and you to put the grief, it was almost like in the context of a celebration and, you let him eat the foods that you, you know, like you had him eat cheeseburgers and like he got mm-hmm. to eat things, you know, and like you let him eat it off the floor, which was his favorite thing mm-hmm. to do and, <laughs> and making it a, a community celebration of the people that were connected to him. Um, and I think that that's such a beautiful thing to honor in that way. Yeah. And it felt like, it felt like I was doing justice to the relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and m- I, I guess my hope for anything, any of the losses that I have in the future is that I can keep that in mind of like, it actually, to me, would feel like a disservice to not feel it, you know, to not really appreciate the depth and, and of the love that we have for the people that we lose. And pets are loved ones just as much as the people in our lives, I mean. Yes, absolutely. And I'd say for gay men, maybe even a little bit more, you know, they, they fill because a role the, that. No, because they're intimate relationships. Yes. For most of this, yeah. pod, uh, well, I've been talking on this podcast, 
my cat will occasionally come up. She has this habit of, of, of climbing onto my shoulders and just the resting there. Uh, there was about 15 minutes of this podcast. My cat was uh, cuddled up on top of my shoulders, talking. I love that. Well, yeah, because those, you know, and those relationships, whether it's a loved one or a friend or uh, an animal, a furry friend or a feathered friend, um, yeah, it's these are the constant in our lives. And I love your point, Doug, of being able to allow grief to lead us to gratitude. Um, to say, you know, like for my, with my granny, for example, like my love of baking absolutely comes from all of the years that I spent in the kitchen with her baking. I, I think that the kind of the running theme for both, like for basically anything that um, is internal that we're not giving voice to, it seems like just the act of giving voice to those feelings, those emotions or those experiences is the, if, if we're looking for a solution or be, to be able to move through it, it has to have a voice. Does that yes. sound right it, from yeah. a professional perspective? Yeah. Expressing a feeling is the first step to transforming it. I think uh, ex- expressing a feeling because that's if it's an, if it's not being expressed if, if it's being pushed down um uh i went through a period of depression which is what led me to go to see a psychotherapist in the 90s because i was pushing down my grief and i was pushing down all my emotions and they still manifested they manifested in a more magnified way um mm. and once i started to actually unpack those feelings um uh, it took two years, but the depression lifted and I've never had, uh, another depressive, um, episode in my life. Um, because I am now in my feelings, <laughs> I express <laughs> my feelings <laughs> in a more authentic and open way. Yeah. And it's this, I, one of the yeah. things that I talk a lot about in my work with my clients is, you know, emotions, you know, and giving, you know, I always say it's our job, it's our responsibility to give our pain a voice. Like no one else can do it for us. And, that these emotions that oftentimes hold us back or frustrate us or prevent us, or, you know, like Ryan, you were saying, continue to show up as, you know, dysfunctional patterns. They're not doing, and I think it's so easy for us to demonize those emotions or to, you know, turn them into an adversary. And I always try to encourage people to look at it from, you know, these emotions are coming here to derail you or sideline you because they're out to get you they are just here for you to express because they want to be felt so that you can move on or you can move through them and to see it as a relationship that can be, albeit challenging and difficult and maybe uncomfortable. It can be seen as one that like, Oh, okay. These emotions want for me to express them so that I can move through my life and move through the process rather than just being stuck. Yeah. And as we, as we look at them and as we talk about these things, like I, so I have, uh, I have a life coach myself and I, um, Doug, you'll be happy to know that I'm continuing to, um, to work on my relationship with relationships. And, um, and I was talking to her the other day about the fact that, you know, we were, we were working on career and we were working on all these other areas of my life and we weren't really touching on relationships because I was just kind of 
holding back from that because I was like, okay, once again, I feel a little uncomfortable about this part area of my life. And I don't really want to talk about it because it's just going to be this long, big process again. And what I found is that once we actually had the conversation that I was so scared of having, I realized that there really wasn't anything unmanageable. There actually wasn't really even a problem. It was that I had a perception that there was a problem or that there was a perception that there was something that was Mm. too big for me to manage. And I think that that's what keeps so many of us um, from expressing these things is because it feels like it's going to be unmanageable. And then once we Mm -hmm. do bring it up and we do bring it into light, we do vocalize and have a conversation about it, you realize, okay, I can manage this. This is this actually wasn't as scary as I thought it was. And so then these other areas of my life, maybe I can look at these areas. There are certain feelings I think men are, uh, again, acculturated to be okay with, like anger and frustration. The more tender feelings, the, uh, re- being um, openly expressing sadness, openly expressing longing. Um, uh, I think those are much more difficult and much more... Um, and again, I think it's related to that, that experience of childhood and vulnerability and not wanting to uh, uh, admit to uh, being vulnerable. And it's interesting hearing you say that, uh, you know, talking about longing and desire. Uh, you know, when I, you know, I had a, in, sexual compulsion was my favorite way of <laughs> avoiding things in my life <laughs> or, you know, numbing things or managing things. And one of the things that I learned through, you know, my own relationship with that was that I didn't feel like my desires were safe, you know, because as a little kid growing up in a small town in Wyoming and then a teenager, just naturally having the awakening of desire and attraction and sexuality and saying, oh, I think that guy is cute or whatever. And then being taught that that's not okay. It's not safe for you to desire the love or this, you know, the physical contact with another man. And so learning how to trust my own desires was a huge thing. Yes. Yeah. I want to give credit to uh, I want to give credit to this book because uh, I mentioned the Museum of Loss later, and there's a book by Margot Sunderland called "Draw on Your Emotions." I, I don't use a lot of the things in the book, but it it, it, it has these little uh, um, ink drawings um, for uh, as a way for people to um, uh, explore emotional experiences. But the thing that I really love about it, and this is the thing that I, I use all the time, is um, what I think of as emotional cartography. One of the things in the book, in addition to the Museum of Loss, is the grand exhibition of bad feelings. Like those feelings that we don't want to experience. Those feelings we don't want to admit that we have. Um, and again, this is one that I often use in, in, in where we'll manifest it in the room. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll either have them make art representing each of these things or we'll use the objects in the room. Uh, to represent these things and we'll engage with the bad feelings, the feelings that um, we label as uh, unsavory in some way. Um, I love that. The grand exhibition. And some of our exhibitions are massive and have been on a global tour for (laughs) 20-something years. It's a traveling (laughs) exhibition. Well, and I like, you know, when you were talking about also using expressive art um, to help people express these things. Cause sometimes I think it's also, we don't even have words for it. So I love the idea of, okay, if you can't tell me what it is in a word, 
what color is it or what does it feel like or what does it look right. like? And I think that for anyone who's listening who may be desiring to make a change or investigate these things, if they're feeling like, well, I don't even know what to call it, it's okay. How does it feel or where can you locate it in your body? Or is it spiky and red or is it brown and sort of amorphous? I think if you can give it any sort of descriptor, I think is a good place to start. I think of times when I've listened to like a podcast or something and someone is um, suggesting seeking out help, um, like we're talking to you, Doug. And of course, like I would recommend if anyone is feeling called to express these things in their life that they seek the help of someone who can hold the space for them and guide them through that. But maybe if they're not ready for that yet, I think that that's a great process at home to write or draw or give as much description, just like you said, Andrew, like start to just open yourself up to, you know, introducing yourself to the pain or the shame or the grief or whatever is there. So then you don't have to hold yourself back, even if you're not maybe ready to go seek the help and really dig into it. At least you can start to move yourself toward a relationship with that pain. So Doug, as we're kind of winding down, I know that we've talked a lot today about a lot of things. um, And this is a huge topic that we could just continue to discuss. And I, I really think we need to have you back. But around these topics of, you know, internalized homophobia or just really internalized hatred or, or, or pain in general. And then the idea of grief and both of these seem to be very personal experiences that you can't just put on a checklist. Is there any advice that you can offer to someone? And I think especially around this time of year, around the holidays, I think grief can be a big one for many people. Um, is there anything that you would say or can you even sum it up in a, in a way or some, some ideas for people to carry with them of, of to how to begin dealing with this or to help them understand it or not feel like they're the only one? Well, uh, these, these feelings are universal. I mean, grief is a universal experience. We can even see animals grieve. I, I know when, when I lost my one cat, the, my other cat completely was grieving in the same way that my partner and I were. You're not alone in the experience. I, I think finding a, a community or a person who you can express those feelings with is really, really important. And to give yourself the gift of just pressing it however you can. If, 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 if you're not comfortable sharing them with others, then as you said, um, get a notebook and, and journal and, and journal with art as well as words. Give yourself the gift of expressing these things because that will at least bring, give it movement. Mm-hmm. It won't be sitting inside festering. And, and I think most of the disorders um, that, lead, uh, that are in the Diagnostic Statistics Manual come from these emotional states not being expressed and not I think, being accepted by others. Yeah, and just that alone of uh, letting people acknowledge that this is a, a universal experience, I think, for any sentient being and that it's part of the process of being alive. And I think from someone who has personally gone through my own journey with these things and is still going to be in the journey with it for the rest of my life, you know, on the other side of it is an easier way of living with it and managing it. And I love your thing, Ryan, of like your relationship with relationships, right? Your relationship with shame or with grief or with any Mm -hmm. of the problems that arise because of those things it can be a lifelong thing, but it doesn't always have to be a contentious, depressing one of like, oh shit, here we go again. Now I have to deal with this again. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that that's something that for me is going to be a lifelong um, process. But now, you know, looking at it, I'm not scared of it. I think it's just going to bring me greater and greater joy. Yeah. And I think regardless of what happens as a result of these things, like I can see very clearly the things in my life that are satisfying, fulfilling that 10 years ago, I would have never thought were related to internalized homophobia or compulsive behavior or grief or what have you. Now I see on the other side of that, that things shifted in a way that I had no concept that was even possible. There are things that are, are satisfying and fulfilling to me now that I see very clearly work. I allowed them in my life as I was able to learn to deal with these things. But if nothing else, just the sense of satisfaction and personal strength that comes from knowing that when this arises again, now I have the ability to deal with it and to cope with it. And I have the people that I can trust in my life that if I can't do it alone, I can call them in to help me do it with them. I think that in itself is satisfying enough, is reward enough. I'm just feeling better in life. Hey, Doug, um, if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing, um, do you have a website that they can check out? Uh, I do. Uh, it's uh, just my name, DougRonning.com is my uh, site for my private practice. R-O-N-N-I-N-G, right? Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you really did, you know, you really were the person that helped me down, start down this path of self-exploration. And I probably, I know I would not be um, doing this podcast with Andrew if it hadn't been for the start on the path. And so I owe you so much gratitude and especially for today, sharing your wisdom and your voice with us. We really, really appreciate it. Well, it was wonderful to reconnect with you, Ryan. And thank you both for inviting me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we will definitely have you back. <laughs> Absolutely. There's much more to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone t- uh, who listened today. We appreciate you tuning in. Um, and we will connect with you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank <laughs> 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 it's the gay thing. Hmm.